Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for joining me on our latest podcast. Um, on Tuesday last, we did uh, a podcast almost exclusively on COVID-19 and the announcements that had been made by government about delaying the opening up of indoor dining and indoor hospitality and so on. I was quite angered by all of that. And I, I guess perhaps one shouldn't record a podcast when one is feeling angry. But um, I, 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 I did sort of try and make the point that we were promised a lot of things over the last year about if we could get hospitalization levels down, um, if we could get the old older people and the vulnerable people protected through vaccines, we could then open up the economy. Uh, we've achieved all of those things and suddenly the goalposts are shifting again because of the, 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 the new variant in the United Kingdom, which is spreading like wildfire through the younger, the unvaccinated population. And um, I, I just feel that for young people, um, it really is a, a tough station at, at the minute. But it is quite incredible. Um, and I think it, it does tell us a lot about how fundamentalist this whole COVID debate has become. Um, the response I got was pretty overwhelming. Um, but the nature of the response was very, very uh, divided down the middle. Very, uh, you know, a lot of people telling me I was totally over the top, that it was a mad reaction, that the government and NEFET is really trying to do its best for the health of the nation and so on. And then on the other side, I got um, a lot of very supportive feedback saying that it's time somebody stood up and said these things. Um, and uh that does kind of sum up the nature of this debate at the moment. Um, I was hoping that in podcasts we could might might be able to devote five or ten minutes at most to COVID, but given how rapidly the situation is changing, um, I think you know it's it, it definitely does warrant a lot of discussion and will do over the coming weeks and months. Um, given what's going on here in Ireland, and there was I, I guess. A piece of good news today, the government has announced that from Monday, 
the um, vaccination program will be open to younger people through pharmacies. And um, that that is good news. It does give young people some hope that they can back get back into functioning society as quickly as possible. But um, the Economist magazine this week has a really interesting piece looking at COVID from a sort of a cost benefit point of view. You read that. Could you describe to us what it's actually saying? Yeah, thanks, Jim. The Economist, as you say, has a couple of very good pieces on COVID this week that I would urge everybody to read if they can. But for those that can't, I'm going to summarise what they're saying here, because it cuts through all of the things that you and I talk about. And you mentioned our last podcast there. And indeed, everything is talking about and it puts the debate in proper context and it isolates the key issues without being emotional. And unfortunately, as we know, this is something that we're all emotional about. What The Economist tries to do in its fashion, which it always tries to do, is is deal with the analytics. And there are a couple of key points. The first is that they claim that the infection fatality rate for the Delta variant, thanks to a number of things, not least vaccinations and better treatment in hospital of COVID generally, not just of Delta, But it looks like, according to The Economist, the infection fatality rate is now 0.1%. Now, that's around a tenth of where we thought it was this time last year, pre-vaccination. And the critical thing that emerges from that simple statistic is that if it's true, and The Economist says it is, this really is now like seasonal flu, because that's very like the infection fatality rate of seasonal flu. And I'll come back to the exact meaning of that, which I think is readily apparent in in a moment. More generally, The Economist cites all sorts of research about all sorts of aspects of of COVID. And it's the citing of research that's important here because this is data-based, this is analysis. This is not you or me or anybody else hurling from the ditch. This is proper research. The first thing it cites in a more general way, which I think has all sorts of interesting things, which we won't be able to explore today, is that somebody in Yale University in the States, somebody called Nicholas Christakis, has looked at previous pandemics, particularly the flu one of 1918-19, but others as well. And he says they share three common characteristics. The first is that pandemics prompt growth in state power. And I think we can see that most obviously all around the world with the pandemic unemployment assistance programs and all that kind of stuff. But I would contrast what's happening in America with what's happening in Ireland in that the the growth in state power in the United States has spawned what we have called on this podcast Bidenomics, which is something not being followed in Europe at all. Quite the opposite, we fear. The growth in state power has a peculiar Irish dimension which is that all of the state power, as far as I can tell at the moment, is being vested in effort, which is a very different experience to the one in the United States. So I, th- I think that this point that uh, Christakis makes is valid, but has very different meanings in very different contexts in different countries. The second point that Christakis makes is a philosophical one, which is that, um, and I think you and I do this a lot, actually, Jim, if not everybody else, in, in that... Um, the pandemic prompts search for meaning in lives that have been turned upside down. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. 
And that's a philosophical point that I'll put to one side, but perhaps we'll return to in a slightly more philosophical podcast. The third one does have an economic dimension as much as anything else. And he talks about the proximity of death or serious illness prompts caution, which of course we've seen all over the place, and then audacity when it recedes. And that's the economic boom that I think we're seeing in certain countries at the moment. And perhaps once the pandemic has receded further than it has, we'll see some interesting aspects of that. So those are the general points that the, the economist makes. The particular second point, this is second to that infection fatality rate that I mentioned earlier on, is that it tackles head on this debate between lockdown skeptics and zero COVIDs. And it talks about the centrality to that debate about who is right and who is wrong between the lockdown skeptics and the zero COVIDs, the zeroids, as we've sometimes pejoratively called them in this podcast, is that both sides explicitly reject the idea, completely reject the idea that there is a trade-off between health and the economy. The lockdown skeptics say it for all the reasons that we know and love, and the zero, the zero COVIDs say that there is no trade-off as well, but for different reasons. The zeroids say that the pandemic hurts the economy, not the lockdown. And the economist examines both these propositions and finds both of them wanting. It isn't either or. And the economist finds quite reasonably, in my view, that the balance lies between the two. And the economist, again, cites lots of evidence that lockdown both damages the economy and saves lives. Now, if you accept that simple premise, which does sound intuitively true, you have to understand that the zero COVIDs do not, and the pure, absolutely fundamental lockdown skeptics don't accept it either. But if you're in the middle, as I am, then certain things follow. What is the evidence? People cite the evidence from lockdowns during the Spanish flu. Trawling through all of that data, you find that whether or not lockdowns actually worked and helped is fiercely debated, even today, 100 years later. Then you come on to the more contemporary examples and everybody jumps up and down and says, what about New Zealand or Australia? And here I'll cite the economist. Their success so far may say more about good fortune than about enlightened policy. Their policies in any event were not replicable in countries which have land borders and you can't apply them after the virus has arrived. Once it's here, it's here. The zero COVID also cites Japan and South Korea as successful lockdown stories, but that's just wrong. They didn't do lockdowns, at least not in the way that we know from both the UK and Ireland. The Economist has looked at comparable countries and show a remark, shows a rem- that shows a remarkably consistent relationship between the severity of the lockdown and the hit to the economy. That's across countries, different countries. They look at America itself and the way in which different states had different lockdown policies. And you can see that different lockdowns have di- very different economic effects. Also cite research that looks forward rather than backwards. All of that research does point to lockdowns hurting the economy. There is a trade-off. Intriguingly, they also cite research that looks forward and that says that the rise in the unemployment rate in different countries that has that, that, that have locked down and had economic damage, and in the United States in particular, that over the next 15 years, the rise in unemployment will cause 800,000 excess deaths. Now, that hasn't been factored into any equations at all. The National Bureau of Economic Research in the States has published some research that says in poor countries, lockdown falls in GDP will, over the future, again, this is future-looking research, lockdown-inspired falls in GDP will will cause 1.76, a very precise number, 1.76 
children dying for every COVID-19 death saved. That's an ugly trade-off. So there's conflicting evidence over just how effective lockdowns have been and how effective they will ultimately have proven to have been in saving lives. In the end, it comes down to accepting, if you accept that there is a trade-off, if you don't, then you're either a complete lockdown skeptic or a zeroid. But if you're what I would call a reasonable man or woman, in the end, it comes down to the question that I know you've asked in your research, what's the value of a life saved? It's a brutal, horrible calculus, but that's what it comes down to. So if you start from that premise that there is a trade-off between health and the economy, you have to have that calculation. And the economist and indeed others, the London Times, for example, this week have come down firmly, I think, in saying, particularly the London Times, backing the UK government's policy of reopening. I'll shut up there, Jim, because I've said an awful lot, more than I normally do in one go. But I think those points are incredibly important and lie at the heart of all of this debate, particularly the one that we're having about the role of Neffert. The Economist piece was incredibly balanced, incredibly well argued. The London Times editorial yesterday was, I think, a, a little bit more straightforward in the sense that, you know, it was making a very explicit call that what the UK was about to do in terms of opening up was the correct thing to do on a cost-benefit basis. So it, it is interesting to see the narrative changing and the debate changing in the UK. Um, I did a cost-benefit analysis back at the beginning of this year, I think in March, uh, where I looked at all of these issues about the, the benefits of the restriction policies we have had in place as against the cost of those. And we looked. I looked at stuff like the quality-adjusted life years um, all of the stuff that The Economist is talking about this week. Um, um, I think we have reached a point where the costs of ongoing restrictions are definitely outweighing any benefits that will be gained because, um, and I, I'm, I'm not a health expert, and I know people will come back and say, what the hell is somebody like me doing talking about health? But um, the benefits of further lockdown um, will act to restrict a virus that is really unlikely to do much damage to the health population, or at least that is the experience in the UK. You know, the Delta variant is causing lots of infection. It is causing illness, but it, it is in the unvaccinated part of the population, vaccinated people, those who get it, um, I think it, it, it seems to be statistically pretty mild. Uh, but yet we are still pursuing this sort of zero COVID ideology here. It's not exactly zero COVID, but it is close enough. Um, I actually do come down in the middle in the sense that, um, you know, I do believe in a trade-off. And I think early in the in the pandemic, um, the, the restrictions that were put in place uh, were definitely worthwhile. And, you know, they, they prevented a, a, a serious situation from becoming a dire situation. But I do believe we have now reached a point where the thing has flipped, where the costs of these ongoing policies are going to outweigh the benefits. And um, I, so that, that's where I stand. And the other thing I would say about the past week, um, and, you know, sport is always a good metaphor for life. Um, I was watching my Waterford Hurlers play last Sunday and um, they were missing two players amongst a few others, but they were missing two players who were serious leaders. And without those two leaders, the team was flat. 
Um, it was a dreadful game. There was no spark whatsoever. Well, I think we saw exactly the same in this week here in Ireland. Uh, the lack of leadership at a political level is absolutely astounding in my view. And I would go as far as to say that the government we have here in Ireland at the moment is probably the worst government, certainly in my memory. Um, and, and that's saying a lot because we've had a few bad ones. But I, I think that the level of leadership from government and our political classes is absolutely abysmal. And, and on the opposition benches as well, it's not much better. They're actually absolutely terrified of Neffet. They are terrified in taking the risk of going against Neffet's advice as they did last December, which came back to burn them. Well, can, can you blame them? Having been burnt by standing up to Neffet once... Yeah, but Chris, surely political leadership is about bravery. You've got to take risks, okay? We've all got to take risks in life. And if if you believe that the vaccination program is actually going to work, and the, the, certainly the evidence is suggesting it is working, well, now it's time to actually change the perspective, start to take some risks. But apart from the leadership thing, um, the other thing that I think has been astounding is the communication. I mean, the communication that we, the citizens of the country, have been getting is abysmal. I mean, I heard twice on Tuesday the Minister for Health being interviewed on radio and television, and you, you come away from it more confused. The communication here is just dreadful. So it's no wonder, you know, people are just so astounded by what's going on at the moment. But I, I, I hasten to repeat again, Chris, this is a very, very divisive issue. You know, there's no doubt about that. Um, I've spoken to two people over the last couple of days that had a go at me of sorts about the Tuesday podcast. And I guess it's been my general approach to COVID for quite some time now. Um, their argument would be the CMO is doing a great job. Neffet is doing a great job. Government is doing a great job. But those two people had a couple of things in common. Um, one they were both um, of the older generation. Secondly, they were both retired people with guaranteed pensions for the rest of their lives. You know, so they had no skin in the game whatsoever. But there are a lot of us out here that are actually trying to make a living in this country. There are a lot of young people who are trying to make a living, who are trying to live a life. I'm not saying I'm one of those young people, but far from it but there are a lot of people out there that the this point really, you make really there about those two elderly people with fixed or uh, maybe even index linked guaranteed pensions is a particular example of the general point i was making about trade-off between health and the economy for those two people there is no trade-off because their economic well-being is guaranteed no matter what by their guaranteed pensions then inevitably they focus exclusively on health. So, so they don't need to take any health risks to have a better economic outcome. So they will look at the health thing and say, right, minimize it, send it to zero. So in that way, they're like the person that never gets in the motor car, never crosses the road. If they don't have to, they only do it because they have to. And, and that's your point about risk. Your earlier point about when lockdowns were appropriate in the past I think was was correct in that it tells us that policies, uh, then their appropriateness, their whether they are correct or not, actually changes through time. They're, they're time they're, they, they are variable. They're time inconsistent. So lockdown at the beginning was absolutely the right policy, and you're arguing that because certain things have changed, it's no longer the right policy. 
I think the challenge to Neffert is that statistic I mentioned at the very top of this podcast was that if the infection fatality rate of Delta is now 0.1%, which is the same as seasonal flu, we've never locked down because of seasonal flu before. Why are we locking down because of a 0.1% um, different virus, one that has the same effect? Their answer would be all their modelling. Their modelling and particularly all that worst case stuff that's been in the papers recently about tens of thousands of cases in Ireland and thousands of deaths, more deaths by the end of the summer. Um, I would ask a number of questions about that. Uh, I haven't done the modelling myself, although I do know how this modelling is is done. The first question I would say is that if, if they're worried about tens of thousands of cases and thousands of deaths because of Delta, they clearly disagree with that 0.1% statistic quoted by The Economist. So they believe in something else. If they do believe in something else, I don't see how just keeping people out of pubs and restaurants cuts it. I would have thought that to be consistent with their own modelling, they should be arguing for a reintroduction of more restrictions um, because of what it is that they might quite appropriately be, be worried about. So I worry about the consistency of their approach. The second thing I would say, and this goes back to that London Times piece supporting living with coronavirus, that was the policy it was advocating, supporting what the British government is doing, because what the British government is doing is clearly making a bet that the infection fatality rate has collapsed and that although there are the number of cases in the UK is horrendous at the moment, it's not going to lead to hospitalizations and death. It, it, it's a bet. Neffert are quite explicitly saying is that they, they don't want to run that risk and that the UK is clearly making a catastrophic error. We're going to find out which one is right and which one is wrong. One of the interesting um, regions of the UK is Wales, actually. And Wales has got the best uh, vaccination rate in in these islands, Um, better than England, better than Scotland, better than Ireland. And its cases too, thanks to Delta, are shooting up. But um, it's been, a, a, I can't remember the last time anybody died in Wales as, of COVID. If it was, it's a, it was one of those odd days where there was one death. Sad though, that, of course, that is. Only yesterday, there was a record low in the number of people in hospital in Wales in COVID, despite the fact the cases are shooting up. So the data is starting to build in favour of the proposition that Boris Johnson and co are putting forward with that we can now live with it. And Neffert are saying, we can't because our models and our data say that it's going to be catastrophic. So we really do have black and white, one or zero, either or going on. And so it really is, a, um, from an intellectual point of view, an interesting experiment. From a societal point of view, it's it's a very profound juxtaposition of, of policies. And it's going to be, at the very least, fascinating. And I hope that um, neither side gets it catastrophically wrong. Whoever's wrong is only a bit wrong for for all our sakes. But but it's now very, very different here in the UK compared to Ireland. One of the things I'd say, stepping back from all of that analysis about why they're doing in the UK what they're doing, all of those numbers and facts and research that I have quoted, the mood has changed, Jim. The mood has really changed in that it's not just the Times of London uh, writing those kinds of editorials about the time has come to live with coded. That's the mood of the people, not everybody, but certainly the people that I know, that I read, that I speak to, that I hear from, there is a real sense now that it would have to be catastrophic for us to go backwards now. Of course, it might be, and, and we sincerely hope that it's not, but 
they, the, the, the government is certainly being supported by the people in terms of what it's doing, which is very different, I sense, to Ireland. Oh, it, it's, it certainly is, Chris. Um, I know one of the, um, some of the feedback we got during the week um, was from somebody in government circles sort of suggesting to us that we were wrong about uh, the dire economic consequences of what we're doing here, you know, saying that the Irish economy is doing very well. The Irish economy is doing very well. You know, all of, well, sorry, a lot of the data coming out is suggesting a strong level of momentum here. Retail sales um, in the first five months of the year were up by almost 18%, and they were up by 47% in May alone. So there is a rebound happening. But one's perspective on that is totally dependent on where one works in the economy. You know, if you're working in foreign direct investments, um, in the multinational sector, in other words, in financial services, in the public sector, particularly in professional services, life is great. You know, you're continuing to earn um, economically. You're doing very well. Whereas if you run an SME in the restaurant sector, in, in the hospitality sector generally, uh, in tourism, in the airline industry, life is an absolute nightmare at the moment. So I really, really do take grave exception to people who argue our assessment of the economy is wrong. It's doing really well. Um, it is doing yeah, really well for some, really, but not for uh, a lot of others. It's really gratifying, actually, and good that somebody close to government did get in touch with us about the last podcast, albeit to very politely disagree with virtually everything that we said. I won't mention the person's name in the hope that they continue to interact with us, because I do think this this debate is important to have in, in a, in a polite and, and courteous way, which is it is obviously in other quarters, it's not conducted in that way. But as you say, this person asserted that we shouldn't be so hard on the government, because if you compare the in, in his words, if you compare the performance of the economy in lockdown three compared to lockdown one, it's chalk and cheese. And as you say, the aggregate statistics do confirm that story. Your response was a sectoral one, which I think is uh, very important and shouldn't be ignored, in a, in a way dismissed by simply citing the aggregate statistics. But the other sectoral, if you like, impact that uh, I would assert is that that top-down macro view of the economy doing well ignores the damage that is being done to children through loss of schooling and disruption to their schooling and young people generally through the loss of their rites of passage, their lives, their anxieties that they're suffering, the depression in many cases that they're suffering, the lost opportunities. And I go back to that research that I cited earlier that was talking about the future effects of the lockdowns long after they have ended. You know, that chapter, of course, has yet to be written. And I would bet, and it is only a bet, that in five, ten years' time, when those books are being written about the economic consequences of the lockdowns, there will be lots of chapters marked gosh, we never saw that coming. We didn't expect it to be as bad as that. So I think that the economic, societal and health consequences of lockdowns will be felt long, long after they're over. And people, I think, in policy circles have completely ignored that point. So I too would reject the criticisms that we got um, via this this um, government-associated person. Incidentally, one of the things that really annoyed me about the the, the criticisms that we got was that so uh, he said that we didn't understand exponential growth if it, if any if anybody wants a lecture on logarithms i'm prepared to give it to them right now if that's what they want
the other thing I kind I find kind of interesting here as well is the fact that Ireland is now a total outlier. You know, if you look at a, a heat map of Europe and where indoor dining is allowed and where it's not, um, we are a total outlier. If you look at what's happening in the sporting arena, uh, we have people in Wimbledon today. Uh, we see what's happening at the European Championships and so on. So, and yet there's very little happening here. We'll allow a couple of hundred people um, into games and so on, even though it's been upped a little bit this weekend as an experiment. So, you know, at, at one level, we, we we cite what's happening with infection rates in Scotland and England at the moment. And our health authorities tell us we've got to look at what's happening internationally. This has to drive what we're doing. Um, that is the perspective when it suits the agenda. But when th- there's no sense of looking at what's happening overseas when it doesn't suit the agenda. So we are an outlier. And uh, I, I really think... These people have got to be questioned yeah. about one this. Of the, one of, the, one of um, the things that has happened today is that um, Angela Merkel is visiting Boris Johnson. She's on a tour of Europe, a farewell tour, Frank Sinatra or Elton John style, I suspect, of, of European capitals. And she's been calling since really for, for over a month now for all visitors to the EU from the UK to be, um, if not banned, put into 14 days quarantine. And it looks like the Germans have been looking at the new data and the new thinking as well, because one German German minister today has been hinting that they're going to stop calling for UK visitors to be quarantined and that, in fact, they might actually be welcomed. That, that hasn't been confirmed, but it is certainly very interesting that the Germans, too, might be changing the, their mind about the dire consequences of the Delta variant. So in summary, I do think things have changed. There's still a lot that we don't know that we have to be very humble about. But I do think that we are now running very, very different policy experiments on both sides of the Irish Sea. They couldn't be more diametrically opposed. And the consequences I think we are going to have to come back to once towards the end of the summer, we're going to see, we'll know who was right and who was wrong. For the sake of the record, I suspect you and I should plant our flag. And I say that we're both somewhere in the middle and we we do believe in that trade-off. And the nature of that trade-off has changed. And the time has come to support those who, who say it's time to get our lives back. That is a fair assessment, Chris. And I also think it's important to point out, while we cite people having a go at us about our views, um, I think we should continue to welcome those views because the more feedback we get, the more debate we create. And that's all very, very healthy. Uh, moving away from COVID, Chris, um, across the Atlantic, employment report in the United States today an increase of 850,000 in employment, which was stronger than expected. And one interpretation being put on is that the, the slower growth in employment in recent months was due to the fact that there was a shortage of labor. In other words, because of the enhanced unemployment benefits people were getting, they were not coming back into the labor force. And that constraint may now be starting to end because half the states in the United States are now rowing back on those um enhanced employment benefits so obviously that creates a strong incentive for people to go back into the labor force um have you been you know following the 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 market narrative in the states in recent days um the whole inflation debate that we have discussed at great length in previous podcasts um and will this eight hundred fifty thousand increase in employment today you know is it going to bring the um the no i I don't think so 
the numbers were good from an employment perspective, but they weren't so good that you would start talking about labor market tightness generating inflation effects. The whole inflation debate in the States has actually settled down to, the, to many people's surprise. And all of the indicators that we look at um, suggest that it's not going to be a problem. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Um, but there were no real big surprises in the employment report. It was the usual mixed bag that didn't settle this debate. Should we call it a day there? You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.